Excerpts from Sir Fairchild's journals. Day 55. If more than anything else, Iraq was a wake-up call telling me my journey will be mapped with uncertainty. We've been in Mosul for several days now, resting for the next boat ride. During this time I checked and rechecked my notes and everything I've seen was the same as those who saw it before me. However, where Vivante saw an Egyptian, I saw an Assyrian holding a book. The next picture showed an Assyrian giving the book to another Assyrian whose attire had what looked like boots, some sort of helmet, and strange clothing. As described in Jean-Claude's journal, he was holding a small square object in his hand, next lifting the square object to the sun, and then the sun coming down, taking the man away. At face value, these basic pictures were self-explanatory, but their actual language still eludes me. It's common knowledge the Assyrians, like the Babylonians, use the Sumerian writing style. But this writing is, well, unknown. I'm sure it matches nothing anyone has ever seen before. If I could just decipher just a small portion of it, the rest will come easily. So now I sit comparing this unknown, writing to all known styles of writing from the past, and to tell you the truth, I'm not getting far. I'm going for a long walk, maybe it'll clear my mind. After hours of deciding what to do, I finally made a decision to the delight of my help, no doubt, to travel down the Tigris River to Baghdad. If nothing catches my attention before then, we'll travel overland to the west and catch the Euphrates River up north to Turkey. Hopefully, I'll see something but then again, maybe I will not. Tomorrow morning we're going to leave Mosul, to my immense delight. This underdeveloped country assails me. It takes more effort to tolerate the intolerable living conditions than anything else I could imagine. There must be something more wealthy nations can do to help these countries. The fact that my countrymen sit smug in their grand homes, not once caring of the plight of their fellow man, insults me. But lo, I too was such a man. Nevertheless, I struggled to remove my solemn state from the letter I wrote home. Day 68. Baghdad. Another hot, dry, and overpopulated city with nothing more to offer other than shade from the scorching sun. I was told that occasional northwesterly winds, called shamels, provide relief from the sun at the expense of suffocating from their wretched dust storms. As I sit here in this pathetic shack, Avahad is trying to gather a guide for our 25-mile hike over to the Euphrates River. So what am I to do now? Stay here in this primitive abode, twiddling my thumbs? I'm a man of action, not passivity. Avahad mentioned there was a new library built close by called Al-Aqaf. So now I venture forth to this library to find something to take my mind off my, well, everything. I need a mental break. It's now late at night, and I must record my findings before I sleep. Early this morning, I went to the Owl Aqaf library only to find nothing in my native dialect English. Everything was in Arabic, I was foolish to think otherwise. Anyway, I found a sizable selection of literature, fascinating for a country not as advanced as mine. It seems as though they are trying very hard to create and enforce national pride among their people. I walked aimlessly, looking at books I could barely read when I happened on the historical section. Historical artifacts were carefully placed in a huge circular room from top to bottom. It looked more like a storage room than anything else. Oh, I forgot to mention that for the duration of my visit to Alawakath. One of the librarian guides stood by my side answering questions and making sure I did not damage their precious items. 
when I asked the guide why the artifacts were placed in such a manner. He simply said they did not have time to organize the historical section of the library. His English was crude, but I was able to understand what he was trying to say. Anyway, without much resistance, he eagerly started to explain the history behind some of the objects within hand's reach. As a historian, I found all of this interesting until I realized a method to my guide's selection of artifacts. He was only explaining the objects from Arab descent, while ignoring other older artifacts suggesting either Babylonian or Assyrian influence. When I asked him about such a piece, he nearly fell over himself to bring my attention back to the Arab pieces. I did not yield, and eventually, he conceded. The first piece I asked him about was a round stone tablet, three feet in diameter, with carved Babylonian writing. He gave me a small explanation, then gave hints of wanting to move on. After badgering him further about a few other pieces, I gave him his wish and he proceeded to lead me out of the room when I saw it. I do not know what possessed me to look up to my right as we were leaving, but there it rested on high shelf, half covered with a worn filthy rag. There it sat, the hieroglyphic picture of a man holding a book. It was the same picture I saw from the last excavation site, leading to the death of so many. It was the same one described in both Jean-Claude's journal and in Bavante's descriptions. I stood there transfixed for God knows how long. I didn't even hear the guide talking to me. It was as though time stood still. When he nudged me, I finally came to and asked him about the object. He immediately said something that sounded like a curse and tried desperately to push me out of the room. After threatening to take his poor treatment of an English citizen to my ambassador, he fell to the floor, anguished over his misfortune. It's amazing how clear his English got at the prospect of being reported. Once I convinced him I would rescind my threat only if I get a closer look at the object, he rose to his feet, looked deep into my eyes, and then glanced at my hands as if looking for something. He stood back, shook his head and said, looking upon the object, that it would cause great pain and death. It was not supposed to be gazed upon by the eyes of man and was to be disposed of soon. When I questioned him further, he remained silent and wouldn't answer my questions. I again demanded he bring it down. He solemnly looked at me and exclaimed why I would wish to bring a curse upon both of us. Again I stood firm, and eventually he brought the object down. It was a square stone tablet, one foot by one foot, or maybe it was a piece of a wall taken from a larger structure. The picture was exactly the same as the other ones except for the writing around it. It was the same language I could not decipher, but I never saw it written around the periphery of the picture like this before. My guide was shaking, looking nervously around him. When I asked him where he found the tablet, he refused to answer the question, no matter how much I threatened him. However, he did ramble on about how it would bring a curse to those exposing it. I told him I was only curious about the tablet from an academic point of view, and didn't care if they destroyed it. I just wanted to understand the meaning of such a picture. With the prospect of getting out of this situation, his tongue immediately opened up with knowledge. He told me the picture was of the Servant of Light, whose sole purpose was to pass on the Book of Light to the next generation and lead them in its ways. I asked him how he knew this from just looking at the picture, and he told me he just read the ancient language. My heart almost leaped from my chest when I heard this. When I asked him to read the inscription around the picture, he said, From the hand of God, from the dawn of time, from the beginning of man. These laws and actions will be preserved and enforced forever. What laws and actions? I asked him. To my dismay, he didn't know. 
He only knew what he read. And when I asked him how he was able to read this and what language it was, he refused, saying he would rather die with that knowledge. After asking several more unanswered questions, I told him I'd not tell anyone of our meeting if he didn't. He should go ahead and destroy the tablet so no curse would ever befall anyone. He agreed most eagerly. And now I sit here again in this shack writing, but now with the hope of possibly understanding this strange language. Little did the guide know he was giving me the information I need to create a primer in understanding it. It's going to take time since there are a lot of characters I still don't understand, but I'm confident that given time, I will know the secret to this insidiousness. Chapter Lost Soul Sean placed the book down, stared at the ceiling for a few seconds, and then closed his eyes. It's been days since he made the DVD for his family and accepted the responsibility of helping the beings calling themselves Manaday Vass. Of course it meant he'd have to do something very difficult, eliminating his mother, but what choice did he have? She made the dim-witted decision of going against the Manaday Vass. They only wanted to help mankind, while she and everyone like her were making things difficult. He also knew if Lisa found out what he had agreed to do she'd never understand. Sean opened his eyes and looked back at the book he was reading. He was in the same house whose basement used to imprison him and the late Albert Spencer. It now served as a house of relaxation, focus, and training for the task ahead. The book he held was what Agent Brown called a training manual, but was really multiple pages of rules and regulations. It was boring and definitely not an eye-opener, but was necessary. Sean closed the book again, stood up and stretched. This is ridiculous. I've got to get out of here before I get cabin fever, he thought. He stood up and glanced outside the window. There was a good breeze blowing through the trees as the wildlife scrambled about responding to some deeply seated primal urges. Sean watched the cirrus clouds racing across the deep blue sky and felt a sudden urge to leave but leaving the house alone was forbidden. Ever since the dark assassin left, Agent Brown kept a tight rein over Sean's activities. However, Sean was starting to feel trapped and not in control of anything. His days were filled with drills and memorization, reminding him of his days at college. He focused on one cloud formation. Never allow the subject to dictate the outcome, remain in control, he thought. Another cloud. The agency and your supervisors are the only individuals you can trust. Thinking again. And another. Everyone outside the agency is considered suspect. No one is exempt, not even family or a very close friend, he mumbled. Yet another. Deadly force is used as a tool, never as a last resort, he thought. Sean turned from the window and looked at the book. The things he was being taught were totally against everything he once was, but then again, nothing was what it really was. His whole world had been totally shattered several days ago, when his eyes were opened to the truth and the facts about his mother revealed. Could he really kill his own mother? Of course, he could and would. It wasn't just the lives of his family that depended on it, but the rest of mankind. It wouldn't be easy, but he had to do it. But how could he live with himself after he did it? Could he keep this horrible secret from his wife forever? Duquesne, shouted Agent Brown as he entered the room. You have at least another hour of studying before your break. What do you think you're doing? Sean rushed back to the book and picked it up. I'm sorry, hi. I was just getting a little tired. Couldn't keep my eyes open. Agent Brown looked at the book, 
then at the window where Sean rushed from and smiled. Do you want to take a walk outside for a while? It's been days since you had fresh air. Yes, I really need to get out. I'm getting cramped in here, Sean answered. All right, put the book down and let's take a walk. Agent Brown paused. Just remember you're to stay by my side at all times. If you try to run or stray off, I'll detain you by force and you wouldn't like the consequences. Sean nodded. The two walked outside and followed a path through the woods without saying a word. After several minutes, the path opened up to a small lake. Brown pointed to a bench near the lake, and the two sat down. Is that better? asked Agent Brown. Yes, said Sean, slumping on the bench and placing his hands behind his head. Good. Brown paused. Sean, these last days must have been very hard on you, having your world turned upside down and finding out the truth about your mother. I know if I had to go through it, I would have had a hard time handling it. Yeah, Sean mumbled. You know, Agent Brown looked at Sean intensely. Your mother wasn't always like this. She was a perfect little girl when she was young. She, you were watching my mother since she was little, Sean interrupted. Brown stared blankly at Sean, then continued. As I was saying, your mother was a good little girl. She never showed traits of corruption like her father. Sometimes prejudice is passed on from the previous generation, but Fairchild's children seem to have missed this proclivity. I guess we were wrong. Brown shrugged. It wouldn't be the first time. He moved a little closer to Sean. I guess what I'm trying to get at is, how do you feel about all of this? Many people wouldn't be able to handle so many changes within a short period of time, and it would be stupid of us to think of you above all this. So, let's talk. What's been on your mind? He asked. Sean looked at the lake, so peaceful, with only the slight hint of movement on the surface from the passing wind. So peaceful, so, I asked you a question. Oh, I'm sorry, said Sean. I really don't have anything on my mind at all, surprisingly. Um, said Agent Brown, rubbing his chin, that's surprising. So you have no problems at all, exterminating your mother. She obviously knew much more than I ever did and knew what she was getting into. Surely she knew she'd be caught one day, and her little game would be over. The ironic thing is it would be at the hands of her own son, said Sean. And what choice do I have anyway? He thought. Yes. What a tragedy, said Agent Brown. Yeah. Your grandfather was one of the biggest thorns in our side. He uncovered some dangerous information about us and threatened us with it. Would you believe he even wanted to blackmail us in order to better himself? He wanted unlimited wealth and prestige. He wanted so much we knew there would be no end to his greed. Unfortunately, we had to terminate him, keep an eye on his family, and hope they didn't pursue their father's dangerous path, Agent Brown lied. I heard only good things about Sir Fairchild from my mother. Was she lying about that too? Agent Brown shook his head. We don't know when your mother started turning, but she was probably telling you the truth, as she knew it at the time. He paused. If Anne-Marie Duquesne acquired any of the information your grandfather had, she could turn the world upside down. The world's economy and social structure would deteriorate overnight. Mankind would be thrown into such a dark age that without the Mana de Vass's intervention, there would be no light at the end of the proverbial tunnel. What her father had was that damaging. Yes, and if she got hold of it, Agent Brown sighed. I just don't know. Sean remained silent and glanced up at the moon. A faint thought tried to cut through his clouded mind but couldn't find a way through. 
He felt as though if he looked at the sky long enough it would make him feel. Sean, said Agent Brown, grabbing his shoulder. We have to find out if she has that information before anything else. If she does, we must know what she'd done with it. Everything. That information must be destroyed. But if the information is already somehow destroyed, then what further harm could my mother do? Does she still have to be exterminated? Now it comes out, that small piece of doubt, thought Agent Brown. There's no other way. You've read the book, say the rule. I know, Sean said slowly. All those possessing information damaging to the agency are expendable and the information disposable. Good, you are a quick study. Agent Brown leaned closer. You're not starting to doubt what you must do, are you? Sean emphatically shook his head. No, I mean look, I know what I have to do. It's the right thing and I know it. It doesn't mean I have to like it. How would you feel if you had to kill your own mother? Not a problem, if I had one, thought Agent Brown. Yes, I know, he said. Believe me, I'm sorry it has to come to this. I would gladly do it for you, but I'll never get close enough to your mother to do it. You're the right man for the job. I'm just glad you see it our way. Yeah. Sean looked back out to the lake and sighed. How he wished he could somehow go back to the life he had before. He missed Nicole, Brad, and his wife even more. Then a fearful thought came to mind. He looked at Agent Brown anxiously. My mother didn't talk to Lisa about any of this, did she? I'd die if Lisa found herself in the middle of all this. The evil inside Agent Brown smiled. Oh, you'll die all right and with that woman by your side. Your whole family will soon be dead when the time's right. My assassins will make sure of that, he thought. Oh no, Sean, she doesn't know a thing, he lied. Agent Brown looked at his watch. Boy, does time fly. Let's get back and work on your focusing drills and meditation. The two stood up. Oh, and one more thing. Sean looked at Agent Brown. Yes. Agent Brown's eyes turned black. Anne-Marie Duquesne must die, Agent Brown said with an inhuman voice. Anne-Marie Duquesne must die, said Sean mechanically with a blank stare. You must get Fairchild's journals, said Agent Brown, evil resonating from his voice. I will get Fairchild's journals, repeated Sean. You have no doubt in what you must do. I have no doubt in what I must do. Agent Brown's eyes returned to normal. Every day he would plant these thoughts in Sean's mind to reinforce what he wanted him to do. And every day it was getting easier and easier. Soon Sean would be so steadfast that nothing would be able to turn him. Everyone was downstairs eating dinner while Nicole was still up in her room, listening to her music and drowning out the world around her. She feared that as soon as she took off the headphones, reality's weight was going to drop on her without hesitation. Not feeling anything and being left alone were the only two things she allowed inside the walls she erected. Jennifer, Nicole's best friend, walked into the room after knocking for a while without a response. Nicole's back was to her as the music blasted from the earphones. Jennifer sighed. Her best friend wasn't doing well. After Nicole's mother talked to Jennifer's mother, and the information trickled down to her that Nicole was upset about something, Jennifer thought it would be a good idea to visit her friend. Jennifer knew Nicole probably better than Nicole's own mother, and when Nicole blasted music that loud, she was really upset and didn't want to be bothered by anyone. Oh well, I'll give it my best shot anyway, she thought. Jennifer tapped Nicole's shoulder. 
Nicole turned quickly, with an angry look on her face that immediately disappeared when she recognized her friend. She turned off the MP3 player and took off the headphones. I hope I don't, like, have to get my nails redone from knocking on your door forever. Jennifer joked, smiling. Nicole looked at her for a while before responding. What are you doing here? Did mom send you? Like, for what? Jennifer really didn't know what Nicole was upset about. She thought she had probably had another fight with her mother. The only way to get through Nicole's defenses was to act as though there was nothing wrong at all. Only then would Nicole open up. Did my mother talk to you, Jennifer? Nicole said Jennifer's name slowly to show how irritated she was. Yeah. What do you think? She opened the door, I said hi Mrs. D, she said hi back, and then I came up here. Like, what's your problem? Nothing, said Nicole, sinking. I. Jennifer held up her hand. Let's not go there. She sat down next to Nicole and produced a memory stick from her purse. You've got to hear what I just downloaded, can I? Nicole shrugged. Jennifer walked over to the stereo, inserted the memory stick, and sat back down next to Nicole. The two listened to the music for several minutes without saying a word. Jennifer then paused the music and turned to Nicole. So, what do you think? Nicole smiled at her friend. Do you really want to know? Yeah, I think I did ask that question, she joked. It sucks. Jennifer stared at Nicole before bursting out laughing. Nicole couldn't help but join in. She couldn't know why Jennifer was laughing, but it was too contagious to ignore. After a while, Jennifer wiped the tears from her eyes. You know how Kim Lee is always bragging about her website, right? Asked Jennifer. Yeah. Well, I know how to crash it and was going to merge this music with it. So whenever anyone visits it, this music will be blasting. She is like, gonna die. Nicole laughed again. Jennifer was always very good at computers and quite devious. She was glad she was her best friend and not her enemy. Kim's gonna be pissed, she said. Yeah, so what? She plays jokes on us all the time. Yeah. So what you're doing for the rest of the night, other than making yourself deaf? Asked Jennifer. Oh, nothing. Just hanging. Oh, just hanging, huh? Had another fight with the big girl of the house, said smiling. Nicole wondered how she could tell her friend of what recently happened with her father. It was something you don't normally pick up in a conversation. Also talking about it would most likely reopen the emotional wound she was trying so hard to cover. No, she couldn't talk about everything, but she could instead express how she felt about some things. Jen, I'm going through rough times. Man, Nicole, if I was you, I'd be totally freaking out all over the place. I think you've handled things better than anybody would. Nicole smiled. Yeah, I guess I did, she thought. But it's still hard. Right now my mother's downstairs with the pastor, his wife and Brad. They don't know what I'm going through. They'll never understand, said Nicole. Jennifer smacked her lips to stop herself from saying Nicole was completely wrong by saying that. Everyone was feeling the pain of the present situation. Nicole had no right to think her mother and brother didn't feel it as strongly as she. Nicole continued, I really have no one to talk to. Brad's a pain and mom still thinks I'm a little girl and still talks to me that way. Even the pastor has problems coming off his altar to talk to me, so I handle it my own way. Hello. Jennifer gave Nicole a soft slap on the forehead. Like, you're talking to someone now. You. Nicole said as she smiled, rubbing her forehead. 
The soft slap on the forehead was their way of telling each other they've overlooked something so basic that the other's brain had to be jump-started. Jennifer got serious. Nicole, you can always talk to me. Don't ever feel as though we can never talk or like, I won't understand. We're here for each other, right? Right, said Nicole with a breaking voice. She was starting to get emotional again. She could feel the dam beginning to break. Also, Jennifer continued, don't forget about God. I know, sometimes situations look so, well, impossible. But don't forget he knows exactly how you feel better than I or anyone else can. You've got to let him comfort you too, Nicole. You can't shut him out, or it's just going to eat you up inside. Nicole nodded pitifully before she burst out in tears. Jennifer grabbed her friend as tears and unintelligible words started pouring out. She couldn't understand a word but realized it didn't matter. Nicole was getting a heavy weight off her shoulders, and that was all that mattered. Jennifer said a silent prayer for God to give her friend the strength to endure the pain of what her family was going through. Outside Nicole's room and a little down the hall, Lisa held her hand over her mouth as tears drenched her cheeks. She quietly turned and walked down the stairs, thanking Jesus for helping her Nicole. The day went by slowly for Anne-Marie as she waited for Julie to return. Morning turned to afternoon and afternoon to evening. Anne-Marie wondered if she had scared the girl off. It was really a lot for anyone to take in such a short time. She then wondered if the girl was going to return at all. If she didn't believe Anne-Marie, then the girl probably thought Anne-Marie was a fruitcake. After Anne-Marie was finished eating dinner and reading a local newspaper, she had the nurse dim the lights. It was time to sleep. She'd worry about Julie tomorrow. And Marie woke up early in the morning from a sound sleep. Something wasn't right. As her eyes slowly focused to the dimly lit room around her, she slowly looked around until she saw someone in the chair close to the bed. She couldn't make out who it was in the chair and was about to call for the nurse when the person spoke. I believe you. Dear God, I believe you, said Julie with her hands on the sides of her face, elbows on her thighs, and her face toward the floor. Julie? And Marie let out a loud sigh. You really scared me there. Sorry. She breathed deeply. I wasn't going to see you today, but I couldn't stop repeating what you said earlier. Over and over again in my mind. I. I needed to talk to you, but you were asleep, so I just sat here, for the past hour, not knowing what to do. It all seemed so unreal, yet real at the same time. She shook her head. I don't know. She looked up at Anne-Marie. I need to know I won't wake up soon, realizing it was just a dream. And Marie smiled. This isn't Kansas, Dorothy. What? Kansas, Dorothy? You know the Wizard of Oz, the Tin Man, Toto the Dog. Oh. And Marie gathered the girl wasn't going to respond to humor well in her state. What she needed now was reassurance. No matter how hard her mind tried to categorize or logically understand it, it only had to be accepted as a matter of fact. Aunt Marie realized Julie had to take a step in faith and was finding it hard to let go of rational thinking. Julie, you must be exhausted. What time is it? Julie illuminated her watch. Two in the morning. Two in the morning. Julie, the nurses must be, they don't care. I just told them I'd taken a personal interest in you. That's just one less person they have to check up on. You can't possibly stay here all night said Anne-Marie. I don't plan on it. Anne-Marie looked at the girl. She looked disheveled in the dim light. 
What can I possibly say to set your mind at ease? I don't know. Mrs. Anne-Marie Sheila Duquesne Hemlock, she said slowly. Maybe we can start off with what do you want from me? What I want from you? Asked Anne-Marie. Yes, why did you tell me all this? You could have danced around the truth, and I wouldn't have known better. Julie, maybe you should ask God that question. I only know God didn't allow all of this to happen to me for nothing. I strongly believe he brought us together, but whatever I say are only words until he confirms it with you. I see you as Mrs. Anne-Marie Duquesne. Everyone else sees you as Mrs. Sheila Hemlock, said Julie, acting as though she didn't hear what Anne-Marie just said. I showed your passport to a nurse, and she saw Sheila Hemlock, while at the same time I was seeing Anne-Marie Duquesne. I didn't see Duquesne before, but after you talked to me I started seeing things differently. You even look slightly different from before. And you're telling me God is blinding the eyes of everyone around you to keep you safe from, from, you know. It does seem quite miraculous, doesn't it? said Anne-Marie. Julie squirmed, feeling uncomfortable. Then I returned to my first question. What do you want from me? Julie, you should ask God to. I heard you before. But I'm asking you right now, Julie interrupted. I know what you said about God bringing us together, but surely you have to know why. Don't you? I need you to tell me. Dear God, Aunt Marie prayed to herself. Please help me say what you'd have me to say. Aunt Marie stared long at the unblinking, expecting eyes of Julie, and then realized she could only tell the truth. I believe God brought us together so you can join me and help me fight this evil I must face. I believe he chose you to help for the upcoming battle, because alone I may not have the strength to do it. Julie lowered her head. That dream you had about your son, if it's true, said you may not have the strength to come against him. And now, you're saying I do. And Marie suppressed a smile. Yes. And all of this is about your father's journals he wrote so long ago and left in that chest. Yes. And nobody knows what's inside those journals except God and demons. And Marie nodded. And Sir Geoffrey Fairchild, who's obviously no longer with us, Julie continued. Yes. Julie stood up and leaned over Anne-Marie, with tears ready to fall from her eyes. I don't think I'm ready for this. Aunt Marie grabbed Julie's hand. None of us are really ready for anything, dear. If we try to be, then we would be doing nothing but preparing for the rest of our lives. Saul wasn't ready to become one of the greatest apostles for Christ when he was renamed Paul. Even Moses argued with God, saying he wasn't the right man for the job. These were just a few great people the Bible talked about and not one of them prepared themselves perfectly for what God wanted them to do ahead of time. God uses what we already have inside of us and brings it forth from within, making it stronger than we would have ever imagined. She looked deep into Julie's eyes. God would not have chosen you if you didn't already have the strength inside to succeed. Sean sat down next to Lisa and tenderly held her hand. In his dream, he was back home again, and everything was the way it should be. Nicole was hanging out in Jennifer's house, Brad was playing baseball with some of his friends from school, while Lisa and Sean were left alone for some much-needed quality time. He looked lovingly into her eyes and told her how much he loved her, that he missed her terribly and would never leave her again. She, however, turned away and cried. He tried to reassure her it was all over and that life was now back to normal. She, in turn, shook her head and said it would never be the same again since he returned. Why? 
What are you talking about? He asked. You sold us out, Sean. You took our freedom away. I did nothing of the sort, he yelled. Lisa yanked her hand away and stood up. She angrily stared down at her husband and then slapped him in the face. The words she then attacked him with took him by surprise. He never heard such profanity from her mouth before. Sitting there taking the tongue lashing, he closed his eyes and wondered what had happened to his loving wife. When he opened his eyes, he saw his mother in her place. Anne Marie stared at her son with loving eyes and pleaded for him to listen to her. All of a sudden, Sean felt the cold metal of a gun in his hand. In slow motion, he stood up, aimed the gun at his mother's head, and pulled the trigger. He then sat back down on the sofa, covered his eyes with his hands, and cried. Agent Brown slowly closed the door to the room in which Sean was sleeping. His eyes were again black as he wore a devilish grin on his face. The carefully placed suggestion into Sean's dream yielded exactly what he wanted to see. He was now confident Sean would kill his mother and follow his instructions without failing.